This is Marlon Kerner, former cornerback with the Buffalo Bills, and you're listening to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. Welcome to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ken Crippen, and I'm the founder and lead instructor at the Football Learning Academy, an online school teaching pro football history. Today's special guest is award-winning author and historian Jeff Miller. He is the author of seven books focusing on the history of American football, including Relics, the history of the Buffalo Bills and objects and memorabilia, Pop Warner, a life on the gridiron, 100 things Bills fans should know and do before they die, Game Changers, the greatest plays in Buffalo Bills football history, Rockin' the Rock Pile, the Buffalo Bills of the American Football League, and Buffalo's Forgotten Champions, the story of Buffalo's first professional football team and the lost 1921 title, which is the subject of this interview. Jeff has appeared as a feature commentator in two documentaries focusing on football history. In 2009, he was featured in the NFL Films production, History of the Buffalo Bills, which coincided with the 50th anniversary of the franchise. And in 2015, Miller appeared in Time Warner Sports Network's Before the League documentary, which told the story of the evolution of professional football prior to the founding of the National Football League in 1920. He has also been featured in multiple episodes of NFL Network's NFL Top 10 series. We will not have a Pro Football History Nugget of the Week as this episode is focused on pro football history. Now let's get to our interview with Jeff Miller. I'd like to welcome award-winning author and historian Jeff Miller to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. How are you doing today, Jeff? I'm good, Ken. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Yeah. So let's start with the 1920 Buffalo All-Americans. So they played sure. in the first season of the American Professional Football Association, or APFA. And for those who don't know, that is now what is called the NFL. And that team grew out uh, to some degree from the 1919 Buffalo Niagara. So how did that 1919 Niagara's team evolve into the 1920 Buffalo All-Americans? Well, the um, the Niagara's were w probably the best team, uh, local San Luis Sandlot team or, or semi-pro team, as we would have called referred to them, you know, back in the teens. Um, they actually evolved into the prospects. The Niagara's were named after a street in in Buffalo, and um, they they changed their name the following year to the Prospects. A couple of guys, um, you know, three or four of the guys moved from the Niagara's to the Prospects. Um, two of the main guys were Barney Lepper and Tommy Hewitt, and, and they were both. Um, you know, Tommy Hewitt was a, an old Michigan, a University of Michigan um, player. He wasn't real good, but he but he had that pedigree because he had played at Michigan. Um, you know, he was no superstar star there, but, um, you know, he had the fielding Yost pedigree. So um, he was brought in. He had played in a couple of semi-pro teams in the in the Ohio, so-called Ohio League. And um, so he had some, you know, he, he had some street cred. Barney Lepper was a longtime Sandlotter. And the two of them together pretty much evolved this team into the prospects. And then it kind of morphed into the uh, All-Americans in 1919, the prospects won the state championship, defeating the Rochester Jeffersons, by the way. Uh, and it, it kind of morphed into this when, when they found out that a league was being started. Uh, you know, the, the APFA or what later became the NFL, they, um, they partnered with a, with a man named Frank McNeil here in Buffalo and uh, 
he was he is a kind of the money guy and they partnered together and they joined the league and um you know they they had a really good team that first year now based on your research were they actual official members of the APFA well everything i've read is that they sent a letter there was a the league meeting occurred on the 17th of september and um, they weren't there uh, but neither was joe carr of the columbus panhandles who ended up being the league president the next year but uh, that's beside the point the 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 story goes that they sent a letter to the league indicating that they wanted to be a part of it the league the league has never been or the hall of fame has never been able ever to find that letter but um that's part of the story and I have no reason to not believe it since they're mentioned in all the all the newspaper articles of the day and and, and uh you know they're they're talked about as one of the best teams in the league in or in the association and uh so you know in my mind there's no doubt that they were a member of the of the association in that year so how'd they do that first season well they finished nine and one and they finished you know a, a game behind the Akron pros and they would have won the championship if they had defeated the Akron Pros on the final game of the season, but they ended up tying them. So um, the Akron Pros were undefeated, so they were given the championship. And in those days, as, as I know you know, the league gave out its championship to the team with the best record rather than you know a head-to-head -head, uh, playoff game. So when even though they played, the, the game itself, the, the outcome of the game didn't necessarily determine the championship because if the if the All-Americans would have won, they would have had a better they would have had a better record. You know, the Akron Pros ended up having a better record, but it wasn't necessarily the head to head game that decided the title, you know, like a championship game normally would, as we understand it today. Mm -hmm. Speaking of title games, let's uh, move on to the 1921 season. And uh, Buffalo claimed the quote-unquote championship, but things yes, uh, went a little awry at the end of the season. So yeah. tell me what happened uh, toward the end of the 1921 season. At the end of November, the, the All-Americans played the Dayton Triangles and won and improved their record to, I, I believe it was 8-0. And, and McNeil decided, you know, hey, we're the champions. You know, he, he just declared we're going to be we're the champions. We're undefeated. We're ending our season now. Uh, the league decided that the last the 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 games would um, league games could be played up until December 4th. In the meantime, McNeil agrees to play a couple more games. And one of them is against the Chicago Staley's, which is George Hallis's team. And when they go up to play George George Hallis's Staley's, they lose. And the problem with that is that even though their records were similar to the Staley's, they were both nine and one, they had defeated the Staley's earlier in the season. When they when they lost to the Staley, Staley's in the last game of the season, the league decreed that the second game of a series between two teams would carry more weight than the first. And so... It, the, the Staley's ended up were, were awarded the championship. McNeil obviously made some mistakes here. Obviously the first one was his, he did not have the same team at the end of the year that he had earlier in the season. He had lost five players to um, the Philadelphia Quakers or Union Quakers or however they were called at that moment. 
um, Heine Miller, Lou Little, and a few others, um, they got into a contract dispute with McNeil. They were playing on Saturdays and demanded more money from McNeil. McNeil said, go fly a kite. So they did. And they ended up leaving the team. So the, the All-Americans ended up losing you know, several of their strongest players. So when they go up to play the Staley's, they don't have Lou Little, Heine Miller, both really good players, Johnny Scott and a couple of others, Butch Spania. So they they ended up losing. They only lost by a field goal, but still it was a loss. And uh, Hellas goes to the league meeting and says, well, we won the last game and, you know, we should be the champions. And McNeil said, no way. We, 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 we thought this was just an exhibition. Well, Joe Carr said all the games between league teams up until December 4th would count towards the standings. So the game counted as a league game and they had the similar records, but because the Staley's won the last game, they were the champions. Well, they also played Akron the day before too, which beat up. Yeah, that's right. They played the Akron in Buffalo the day before and then um, traveled all the way to Chicago overnight. So they were in no shape to take on the Staley's the next day. Yeah. And they defeated the, the pros. So, I know Frank McNeil fought till the day he died to try to get that uh, championship overturned. How was that received by the league? Uh, basically, you know, um, <laughs> no one cares anymore. There's a letter that um, that was sent by Frank McNeil's widow, and like right after he died, sixty three, sixty four, I can't remember the date, but it's it's directed to. Dick McCann, who was the director of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, the original executive director, um, calling calling him a liar, calling you know the, you know George Hallis a liar, um, because she said that she was promised that the league would review the decision that was made forty years earlier and uh, make some determination. And I don't think that George Hallis would ever give up a championship. So I don't think that a promise was ever made. You know, Hallis might have said something to Frank, you know, like, oh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll look at that. But, you know, the word promise gets bandied about very easily. Um, but, you know, the league wasn't going to make any changes, especially where George Hallis is concerned. It's one, it was one of his, what, seven, six or seven championships. They weren't going to take away a championship from, you know, the most powerful guy in the league outside of the commissioner. So, um, you know, it was, you know, Mrs. McNeil just, you know, <laughs> she didn't stand a chance. And uh, so, yeah, McNeil went to his grave pretty much, you know, fighting it, and it was never going to get overturned. What were the expectations going into the 1922 season when they were competing for the championship in 21? Well, I, I think the people in Buffalo, you know, felt very strongly that, you know, this team was going to repeat. Um, when they only ended up winning six games, you know, obviously, the you know, you were losing. You, you had players like Aki Anderson who were – injured and you had other players that were out and, and again those other five guys that were integral parts of the game or parts of the team didn't come back so you know, really it wasn't the same team anymore you didn't have elmer oliphant he was gone he was their best he was their best weapon um aki anderson was another great halfback he was gone so you just didn't have the firepower like you had the year before so it was a big come down and you know the city of buffalo relatively you know not not huge um but you know, they weren't they weren't drawing more than four or five thousand the year before on average. And now they're, you know, once a lot of their superstars left, 
you know, and they started losing, the attendance just started dwindling at that point. The uh, team was sold in 1924. Talk to me a little bit about that, about the new owners. New owner was Warren Patterson and um, in partnership with Tommy Hewitt. Uh, Tommy was the, was the quarterback and coach of the team from the, from the get-go, and he was very successful. You know, he, he never had a losing season up till then, and even in 24, they still had a winning season. But, um, you know, again, they, they just didn't have the talent that they had before. Uh, Hewitt stays on as coach, co-owner, and quarterback for another year. Then um, he retires after the 24 seasons. And that was the last year where they had success. 1925 comes along. That's when Wally Coppish comes in. But um, up until from 1920 to 1924, Tommy Hewitt had a winning percentage of like, off the top of my head, I think it was 600, 671, and which is pretty phenomenal. Even, even in those days when, you know, things were skewed, um, you know, it, it was a pretty good winning percentage. So five consecutive successful seasons was was pretty darn good uh 24 is when benny boynton came onto the team correct benny boynton came onto the team he was um awarded to the the buffalo team by Carr in a dispute with the rochester jeffersons and um he was a superstar for the jeffersons and then he goes over and he becomes a superstar for the bisons as they were named in in, in 24 uh he had a really good season but um you know it was I th- you know they they just didn't have you know, they didn't have the offensive line. They didn't have other players. You know, they had uh, Eddie Kaw, who was a, a really good halfback out of, out of Cornell. But, you know, he, he missed a few games. So it just was an inconsistency that, uh, you know, and, you know, other teams were just getting better. You know, Canton and, and some of the other teams were just improving and, and picking up talent that the Buffalo couldn't afford. Yeah, I mean, it, it seemed like they tried to – put the talent in but like you said they just couldn't afford the top-notch talent that some of the yeah. other teams were doing yeah um yeah i'm not sure you know I, i'm not their salary structure you know obviously we wouldn't have privy to but um you know they had pete Kolak from canton and they had swede youngstrom who was an all pro guard but after that you know they had a bunch of guys you know and they were probably making 25 bucks a game so they weren't star players and when you take on a team like canton or cleveland where you have you know your whole offensive line is, you know, Guy Chamberlain, Wilbur Henry, you know, right down the link line and right down the line, you know, you're, you just, you don't stand a chance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then you look at the the Chicago bears and then, you know, all their, you know, George Trapton and, you know, all their all pros it's, you know, we Buffalo didn't stand a chance. Now you had mentioned previously that Wally Coppish came in in 1925. Talk to me about yeah. his background. Wally had played uh, in Buffalo. He was a um, three-time Maston Park or, um, city champion at Maston Park. And so he was highly touted and highly recruited in college. He ends up going to Columbia and in his sophomore year is named captain. And he is captain for three consecutive seasons, which is unprecedented. He, he's a three-year captain. He was so well-respected. He was a great running back. Um, and he's also also ends up being a two-time Walter Camp All-American, which is you know pretty impressive. Um, at that time, probably the only running back besides the Four Horsemen and Red Grange. You know, um, he's probably the most well-known running back besides the Four Horsemen and Red Grange at that time. And um, so hopes are high. 
the New York Giants really want him because he played in Columbia and he's pretty well known in New York City. But um, the story goes that Merrill let let the Bisons have him as a goodwill gesture. And he comes to Buffalo and the first thing he does is get into a fight with a reporter from the Buffalo News, which is the Buffalo Evening News, which is the largest newspaper in Buffalo. And so what happens is the Buffalo Evening News gives them no coverage at all. If you and I know you've done a lot of research on the Buffalo teams, you'll notice that the Buffalo Evening News, you know, didn't give them any coverage. You, 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 when you do your research, you're going back and looking for box scores and, and game accounts, and there's nothing in the Buffalo News or something very small. You have to go to the Buffalo Courier or the, or the Buffalo Times or something to find to find anything on 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 the Buffalo Bisons of that year. Um, and then, you know, the, the team again. He tries to build this team using using the system he, he learned at Columbia. So he goes out and recruits a bunch of guys like Ben Roderick and um, uh, Eddie Fisher, who played with him at, at Columbia. And they end up not very good. They end up winning one game. And and Coppish gets injured halfway through the season. So he, he only plays in five or six games that year. And then he's, he's done for the season. So they end up going one, six and one. And it was just a disaster. So he lasted here one year, and um, it's it's really sad because when you go back and you and you and you're reading, like I had I didn't know I didn't know very much about this team when I started researching the 1925 team, and you're you're going into this and you're looking at at the uh, at the at the newspaper accounts and you know Walter Coppish is coming and you're thinking wow this is gonna be great they got this local boy who's a three times Maston you know champion at Maston Park. And he was a two-time All-American at Columbia. He's coming back home and, you know, local boy does good. And he comes back and it's just a disaster from day one. And one season and he's done and he ends up playing in New York. And then he, he plays one season out there and that's it for Wally. And, um, you know, the next year they move on and they become the Buffalo Rangers. So. I mean, they lost okay. a lot of talent prior to that 1925 season. I mean, you had mentioned before Tommy Hewitt left uh, to become right. an official. Benny Boynton left. Pete Kalak left. Eddie Call left. Eddie Call, yeah. I mean, um, yeah. The only person, the only person who, who was a constant through that whole year, who through that whole time, was Swede Youngstrom. Lou Feist, who had played at Columbia briefly and played at Canisius, was another guy that Coppish um, kept, kept because, probably because he knew the system. But um, the only the only guy who had been an, you know been an all American Buffalo all American from the get go nineteen twenty right on through the twenty five season was Swede Youngstrom and he of course was one of the best players in the league he was a three time All Pro at guard um, you know they he brought in you know a lot of a lot of guys that um, you know they played in college but they weren't stars yeah and then Swede leaves after that season to go right. play for the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets okay. yeah and then ends up winning a championship he couldn't win in Buffalo so. Mm -hmm. I mean that team was stacked though that twenty six yeah. for Yellow Jackets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now my understanding is you're doing a book on the on the Yellow Jackets. Uh, yes, I am. I figured I'd plug that because something that's long overdue. We need a book on the Yellow Jackets, a great team from that era that, like you said, won a championship and we don't know too much about. So good. Yeah, they go fourteen one and two that season, win the championship, all the famers on there, all pros on there. So yeah, it was a. Uh, it's a pretty strong team. Yep. All right. 1926, Jim Kendrick comes in, takes over as manager, player, coach. 
Yeah. They tried to do something new with that Buffalo Rangers team, like you had mentioned. What was this new concept and how did it work out? The Buffalo Rangers, his idea was to build a team using players strictly from the Southwest. So that would, you know, Oklahoma, Texas, um, that area down there. And so he goes out and he recruits all these guys from Baylor and Texas A&M. And he, he's installed as the coach, halfback, quarterback. Um, it was, again, um, you know, it, it had a lot of potential. But, you know, the idea of all these players from one grouping, it had been done before, I guess, when you were the Orang Indians. You know, they, they kind of put together a team of just Native Americans he got, I don't know where he got the idea that, you know, for, for some reason, all these guys from Texas are going to be superior to the rest of the league, but that was his idea. They, they were all right. They won, they were four and four, four, four and two, I believe was the final record. So, you know, they, they, they finished 500, but you know, I, it was just, again, it was another, it was another ill-conceived team. You know, there was, there were weather problems. They had a few games rained out. They, they just, um, again, it, it, it just was not, um, it was not successful. Um, the most interesting part of that season to me was that they did a barnstorming tour um, at the end of the season. They, they left here at the end of December and they went out to the Southwest and they played five games um, against different teams from out there. Um, a couple of Native American teams, but a couple of other um, service teams that they played and um you know, I thought it was kind of interesting because we all hear about, you know, the, the Bears doing their their barnstorming, and um, but the Buffalo Rangers um, had a five game uh, barnstorming schedule that, um, I, you know, not real successful, but it was it's pretty interesting to to study up on it because you know, again, the only one we ever hear about is is the the Bears with Red Grange. You. Uh... But I had a nice little nugget in your book, some trivia of the 1926 team was the only team in NFL history to have two people nicknamed Furpo on the same team. <laughs> yeah, Furpo McGilbury and uh, Furpo Wilcox. That's right. <laughs> Both named after the boxer, I guess. <laughs> mm -hmm. I just yeah. wanted to put that plug in there. <laughs> All right, you brought it up a little bit. You know, in the 1926 season, they were competing against Red Range in the American Football League, the yeah. first of many incarnations of an American Football League. So, yeah. talk to me about the impact that that rival league had on the NFL. Well, the the, the only direct, I mean, I you know, I just did I just did a whole bunch of research on this because you know when when Red Range after after the 25 season he and he and uh, Pyle um, Charles Pyle his his manager went to the league meeting in January and said um, we want our own team in New York and if we don't get it we're going to start our own league and uh, Tim Mara who owned the Giants had territorial rights and he refused to give them up so Grange and Pyle said okay we're going to start our own league and anybody in the room who wants to go with us can come, can come along and the only team that went with them um, was Rock Island. So they go off and they start the American Football League and they become the New York Yankees and the Rock Island team is, is there. And then there's teams in, from Los Angeles and um, Chicago. And um, again, I, I think at that time, professional football did not have a really good reputation. It was considered kind of the, 
the prostituted bastard stepchild of the college game. And the NFL was just starting to catch its, you know, to get its feet wet. You know, it was starting to gain a little bit of credibility when Red Grange came along. And then all of a sudden this happens. And then, you know, then it kind of sends this message like, yeah, it's all about the money. See that this proves it. It's all about the money. These these players are only in it. They don't care about teammanship or 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 you know you know they they have no they have no integrity. So the league the league starts. You know it hurts the NFL because you know Red Grange they lose Red Grange. But the the worst part of it is that Grange starts his team in New York, and. There's enough people in New York to make two teams successful. So the Giants, the Giants did okay. And the Yankees, the New York Yankees, Granges team did okay. But after that, there were there were no other teams that really did well. Um, and what what ends up happening is the league folds after one year. And Grange tucks his tail between his legs and comes back to the NFL. But they let him come back with his team intact. So the New York Yankees end up going back to the NFL in 1927. But again, we're in an era where the where professional football is not looked at, you know, um, you know, with any type of you know <laughs> integrity. People, people, you know, there were there were coaches, Amos Alonzo Stagg and and Fielding Yost and and, and all the all the big coaches at that time campaigned against professional football so the idea of having two professional leagues just wasn't going to wasn't going to work you know you're only drawing two three thousand people to a game you're you're just going to go bankrupt real quick especially when you're paying some of these players like joey sternman in chicago or wildcat wilson out in california you know huge sums of money you know you you just can't sustain it so um it, it hurt the league for one year but then you know grange comes back and of course, when he comes back, he's not the player he was because he had gotten hurt. And so he ends up, you know, the Yankees only last one year in the NFL. He ends up going back, going back to the Bears eventually. And um, he's never the play, same player he was. And you now that's it. <laughs> All right, let's get back to Buffalo again. Um, yeah. 1927, change coaches oh. yet again. Another yeah, one. 27. Goes to the Giants. <laughs> two years in a row they lose him to the giants so it took over for him uh dim batterson who was a local coach pretty well pretty well respected around buffalo he had played semi-pro ball in the early days of buffalo with the oakdales he had uh, he had coached um at maston park with with walter copper so he had he had some he had some credibility um but again, he had, you know, they were just piecing a team together. They had, you know, nobody of any, with any um, star power on the team. They end up playing five games. They lose all five and fold. And then they don't come back in 1928. So it was a pretty bad season. Uh, Dim Batterson, though, you know, he, 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 I think under different circumstances, he might have been more successful. But given the given the roster that he had, I don't think I don't think he stood a chance. All right. So twenty seven was a disaster. Twenty eight, mm -hmm. they didn't play. How about nineteen twenty nine? They come back in twenty nine, and again, they're not very good. Um, they win one game, but the only game they win 
is against the Chicago Bears and Red Grange. And it's pretty impressive when you when you look back now that um, you know they could beat the Bears, who are a pretty good team. They had Sternemann, they had uh, they had Grange, they had Bill Sen, they had Hallis. You know they had they had a pretty good they had a pretty good team. Actually, Hallis wasn't playing by then, but um, they you know they were formidable. And you know the irony is that the the last game they ever won was against a team that knocked them out. For winning the championship in 1921 and so they kind of got there to revenge and then you know drifted off into history but um again it was a it was not a good it was not a good team and by then they they just couldn't afford you know afford to put a good team on the field the owners al Lowe and ray weil you know i think they were just kind of trying to put a team on the field rather than trying to put a competitive team on the field they just went out and handpicked anybody who was not taken by other teams and, and just went with it. You had mentioned this name previously, Tommy Hewitt. So talk yeah. to me about him as a player, as well as uh, later on a game official. Tommy was a, a short guy. He was about five foot nine, five foot eight, five foot nine, um, about 170 pounds. He, but in those days that wasn't, you know, that, that wasn't that big of a deal, but still, he was still small for his time for, for that time. But he was a clever coach. He he was not afraid to try new things. Uh, you know, again, having a having a six seventy one overall record is, is pretty good. And one of the things that I thought was really impressive about him was in nineteen twenty two, it was twenty three. He he installed a spread formation. Uh, Luke Luke Urban, who was his end and an all, an all pro, was also coaching at Canisius College at the time and was using a spread formation putting the ends out wide and he Tommy Hewitt was convinced that it would work and help help the um, help the All-Americans and I, I, I seem to recall that they tied the next game against Canton but they did not you know after that it wasn't very successful but it was his willingness to be progressive and you know to go on to take his progressive nature a little bit further um, after he left the coaching ranks, he became a, a a referee. And one of the stories that's told about him was how fair he was to the African-American players. He was officiating a game in the All-America Conference at one point, and Marion Motley told a story about how he carried the ball, I can't remember which team, but after the play was over, one of his opponents came up and stepped on his hand and made some racial slur. And Tommy Hewitt came over and flagged the guy. And the the player said, why, what did I do? And he said, you stepped on that man's hand. And, you know, first of all, I think that Marion was happy that he was called a man. But also that he did not allow anyone to treat him poorly just because of skin color. And so Tommy Hewitt had a very good reputation among the players because of his fairness and because of because of how he treated everyone, you know, and it did regardless of color. So Tommy Hewitt's a personal hero of mine. He uh, was a really good coach and was with this team, the, the All-Americans and Bisons for five full years as a player coach, very successful. And then he goes on to a very successful career as a uh, game official. Let's shift gears a little bit. 
I know you're working on a new book on the Rochester Jeffersons, who was also yeah. playing in the 1920s. Yeah. Um, one of the founders of the league. So talk to me about that project and just give me a little sure. bit of something unique that you learned from your research. Oh yeah. Leo Lyons. Um, Leo Lyons was the, um, he became a player with the Rochester Jefferson Sandlot team in 1908. He was 16 years old when he joined the team and they, they, the Rochester Jeffersons have been around since about 1980, 1898. Um, they started out as a university team and then spun off and became, became a Sandlot team. And, uh, you know, Leo became kind of obsessed with football just before this, you know, mid 1906, 1907, and then found out his friend Dutch Melody had been playing with the Jeffersons and asked Dutch if he could get him a tryout. So Dutch convinces the coach of the Jeffersons to give Leo a tryout. Well, the tryout turns out to be a game because they were shorthanded. So Leo just gets thrust into the game and he ends up loving, loving it. Two years later, he's 18 years old. They don't have a manager. He says, I'll manage. And so he becomes the manager owner of the team. And from that point on, he's the owner manager of the team up until 1925. But um, he, he remains as a player up until the late 1910s, you know, around 1918, 1919, he plays until. He, there's a lot of interesting things about Leo. And the first, the first thing is in 1912, he recruits Henry McDonald from another neighborhood Sandlot team. Henry McDonald's an African-American player. He's the first African-American person to graduate from a Rochester high school. He graduated from East High, and he um, is playing sandlot ball for the Scalpers, which is another local team. Or not? I'm not. I'm sorry. That's Scalpers, the Oxfords. And he, Leo, is watching as you know the the Jeffersons are playing, and he's noticing that McDonald's ripping off these you know twenty yard, thirty yard, forty yard runs, goes on an eighty yard uh, run to daylight, and notices that. None of the Oxford players go over and congratulate him. When any, whenever anybody else on the team would do something great, they'd go over, pat him on the back, help him off the ground, whatever. But with McDonald, they did nothing. They would pat each other on the back, and he'd have to just kind of walk off by himself. And he didn't understand this. So he's part of the team. Why aren't they? Why aren't they treating him that way? And he made an mental note of this in the first time they played him in 1911. In the last game of the season. They played it the second time. He notices this is happening again. So after the game, he goes over to McDonald and, and you know, because he heard that the Oxfords were going off to celebrate the win. He goes, why aren't you going over with your with your team to celebrate? And he, go, he says, are you serious? You know, like, I wasn't invited. So Leo decides he's going to ask him to join his team the following year. He says, you know, if you come to play for me, color will never have any bearing on it. You'll always be treated as part of the team. So he he recruits Henry McDonald to play for the for the Jeffersons, and Henry's a, Henry's a superstar. He he ends up you know playing for the Jeffs on and off for the next six years, and um, he's just an outstanding player. He eventually leaves and goes to play for Lancaster, but then comes back. He kind of goes back because that's the way it was in those days. You know the highest bidder and you know where's the money and and all that. But um, so for me. You know, that's the most impressive thing about Leo Lyons is is that, again, that progressive spirit. You know, I don't care what color your skin is. You know, 
can you play football? Can you win me football games? You know, and then they end up becoming very good friends. They're lifelong friends. There's letters from Henry McDonald to, to Leo, you know, in the seventies, you know, thanking him for the opportunity. In 1915, uh, the, the next cool thing that Leo does is he develops this logo. Actually, it was 14 or 15. Um, the, the familiar Jeff's logo, the script, you know, it becomes the first logo used by a professional football team other than like a regular C. The C could have been, it could have been Canton, it could have been Chicago, it could have been Cornell, whatever, you know, but the C, so the C wasn't really distinctive. He wanted, to, he wanted to have something distinctive. So he developed this script logo that he he had sewn on his shirts by the players' wives and mothers would sew them on. And um, the, funny, the funny thing is, is that each, each wife or mom would sew it on a little bit differently. And some of them were up here, some of them were down here, some were over here. So Leo decided that he was going to have his wife do all the logos so his wife ended up doing all the logos so the jeffersons are the first team to have their own logo which is i think pretty cool um then in 1916 they win the state championship uh beating altanawanda and they they um so he's got this trophy which he's john still has in his collection and leo would display proudly whenever you know he's being interviewed by by tv or a newspaper he'd always proudly hold that trophy pretty cool um and then it, so leo's there at the league meeting to to organize the league um where you know joe carr isn't there and you know a lot of these early guys weren't there leo was there george Hallis was there uh carl stork was there frank need was there a lot of these early founders but not but not joe carr um, Leo was there, and Leo was a mover and shaker. He he actually wielded a lot of um, influence in the earlier days. The Jeffersons were pretty well respected, and um, so so I, I, I you know what I find really fascinating is that Leo wrote notes every time he went to a league meeting, and some of those league some of those notes really give you some insight into what was going on at the league meeting. For example, you know some of the some of the accounts of that league meeting say that Jim Thorpe wasn't there. He, you know, they made him the president of the league, and he didn't know about it till later on. Well, Leo's notes show that he did show up. They had made him president when he wasn't there, but he showed up like right after the league adjourned. George Hallis was already gone. A bunch of people were already gone, but Leo and a few other people were still there when he shows up and they told him you're the president and he was like, what? You know, he, he was totally caught, caught off guard by this, but that's what I think is really cool about this story is all these notes that Leo kept. He kept notes about every league meeting games, particular games going to green Bay. He, he, there's a full ledger of his travel expenses going from Rochester to green Bay. So all the legs of the railroad trip, uh, the hotel stay, the meals, the guarantee that they were given, the players' salaries, it's all there. It, I mean, this is a treasure. And to find this stuff, to me, is like, I, I don't know why the Hall of Fame doesn't want this or have it. Maybe they do want it, and they don't know John's have it, John has it. But there's all, all, all these amazing notes that, that exist that Leo 
had stored away. There, the other cool story, two other cool stories. If I'm taking too long, stop me. Yep, go ahead. <laughs> okay. The other cool story is in 1916, before the NFL's even started, Leo's talking to George Eastman, the 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 president and founder of Kodak, about creating football cards. 1916. Okay. So he's talking to Eastman. He's talking to candy companies in Rochester, local candy companies, about how to go about making these cards because baseball cards that were already being manufactured and used in tobacco and other candy um, products. So he figures, well, why can't we do this with football? It's a way to promote the game, make the big game grow. So he's already got this idea. He, he's, his notes are there. You know, he's got letters from George Eastman. He's got letters from candy companies that, you know, either rejecting him or saying, great idea, but, you know, how are we going to pay for it? Stuff like that. He brings it up at league meetings. They talk about it. Joe Carr, he's with letters from Joe Carr saying, well, we, this is a great idea to promote the league, but we just can't afford it right now. You know, the league is in its infancy. We don't have any money for it. So that, to me, is an interesting story. Then the next interesting story is in 1936 is when we see the first suggestion of a creation of a Pro Football Hall of Fame. And it's Leo's idea. There's a there's a letter, a letter from Carl Stork. Um, and also one from Joe Carr and one later from Burt Bell, all talking, all in response to him talking about Hall of Fame. And it says, your idea of a Hall of Fame is great. Let's talk about this at another time. And this is throughout the 30s and 40s. It doesn't happen until 1963. Well, you know, they break ground in 62, but it opens in 63. So it took almost 30 years for it to become a reality. Leo's collecting memorabilia, items, relics, you, you, you name it. He, he's collecting old jerseys. He's collecting cleats. He's collecting footballs. He's collecting documents. He's he's got all the stuff he wants to he wants to store it somewhere and he finds out that there you know there there's um museums going up the the the, the baseball hall of fame is is not far from rochester so he knows all about this he, he's like we got to do the same thing and you know nobody nobody thought you know to to do it until he came along and you know and they they kept pushing him and pushing him and pushing him and finally um, it gets it gets approved, and you know the thing is, again, it was Leo's idea, and and you know it sounds outrageous. This guy who comes out of nowhere has the idea for football cards, the idea for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. That's Leo Lyons. Logos, yeah. logos. I mean, to me, this is the fascinating thing, and I didn't know a lot of this until John and I started going at it, you know, and he started sharing me a lot of. This. I knew a lot of this stuff about Henry McDonald and the logo, but when I, you know, the football card thing is like. John mentioned it, and I was like, "No, come on!" And he, you know, there's the proof. You know, <laughs> there's the letters. Like this is a, this, and then you know, I'm proud to be the one telling the story. You know, I, I'm helping John tell the story because I think you know I don't want to change the, the the history of the NFL or you know say that they were all wrong, but I want to add a wrinkle to it. I want to I want to be able to say this is a missing piece that needs to be told. You know, because it's not going to really change anything. You know, everything happened the way it did for a reason. And, and it, it, you know, you can't go back and change history. But, you know, let, let's take a look at this. It's not all about George Hallis and Joe Carr and, and Jim Thorpe. You know, there are other major players in this. Carl Stork is another one who didn't get his due. 
you know, the, the Dayton Triangles. And, and, you know, now maybe the time has come for, you know, the Dayton Triangles now have a movie out, you know, and, and so maybe maybe now the, now is the time for some of these players and some of these owners and, and other, you know, uh, early figures in the game to get their due. Yeah, I mean, we can only hope, but uh, yeah. I know that it's up to the Hall of Fame committee and they don't really seem interested in any of the older no. stuff. So we'll no. see what happens. And just think, what would the Hall of Fame look like today if it had started in the 30s or 40s? Yeah. As far as those early players, early contributors, things like that. Matter of fact, you know, there's a note. Um, we found a newspaper article where um, Dick McCann, who was executive director, was talking about going back and finding some of the pre-NFL guys. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you know, there were no pre-NFL guys, you know, enshrined. What, Peggy Parrott, you know, Pudge Heffelfinger, you know, there's a lot of guys they could have gone back and found, and they didn't. And, and you know, I, I think because they wanted to focus on NFL guys, because those were all the, the owners and the the you know the people on the on the hall of fame committee they didn't care about those guys who came before that it was jim thorpe forward and Mm -hmm. so that's kind of what you got was that those 17 original guys were you know jim thorpe forward (laughs) now just to put some context too think about it western new york at one time had three nfl teams they had buffalo they had rochester and they had tonawanda albeit for one game (laughs) Yeah, the three teams in Western New York. Yeah, Rochester took care of uh, Tonawanda. They played one game and beat them forty-five to nothing, and you know Tonawanda pretty much folded after that. But yeah, it's pretty incredible to think that that you know you you one small area like this could sustain three teams, and obviously they couldn't for for very long. But you know that that that's pretty incredible. And you know you just think about it though. You what what would the Buffalo Bills be today? had the All-Americans succeeded or the Jeffersons succeeded, would would we have a Buffalo Bills? Because, you know, Leo Lyons would have had the territorial rights to Rochester and probably all of Western New York. You know, if if uh, Ralph Wilson comes along in 1960, he, you know, yeah, I guess he could start an AFL team. But, uh, you know, would he would he want to uh, uh, with the Jeffersons, an NFL team that close? Probably yeah. not. Well, yeah, you, know, you look at it too. Is, you know, Buffalo tried to fight for NFL teams in the forties and mm-hmm. the all America football conference folded. They tried bringing them in at that point. Some of the negatives were Buffalo can't sustain a team because of the, right. what happened in the 1920s. Right. right. So who knows what, uh, what would have happened with all that stuff. Yeah. But uh, well, the other thing, I, if we still got a little bit of time, the other thing I wanted to bring up and something we really focus on in the book is the red Grange story. Mm-hmm. Because Leo tried to sign Red Grange, and um, John actually found the canceled check for $5,000. And there's a big story behind where that money came from, which I don't want to reveal here, but it's a very interesting story. And he found the check, and you know the truth is that Leo went to Chicago to try to sign Grange, but he had already been sequestered in a, in a room by Hallis and Sterneman, so Leo couldn't get to him, but... Um, you know, the per game guarantee that Grange was getting was less than what Leo was offering, but they had already signed him. So Leo couldn't, Leo couldn't get in there. And it's a shame, you know, Leo probably would have gone broke if he would have signed him because there's no way that the city of Rochester could have raised $5,000 per game just to keep Grange. 
but um, you know, it it would have been interesting. You just think of how the NFL history would have changed had Rain Grange signed with a small team instead of the Chicago Bears. You know that that, that would have changed everything. Yeah, I mean, it definitely would have changed that landscape. So yeah. All right, we mentioned a couple of names: Tommy Hewitt, Swede Youngstrom. Mm-hmm. Who were some of the other best players from those early Buffalo and Rochester teams? Oh, personal favorite of mine is Luke Urban. And I was lobbying for Luke Urban to be enshrined in the Greater Buffalo Sports Hall of Fame for a few years. And he finally got in in 2020 during COVID, so nobody actually knew about it. But Luke, Ur- Luke Urban played his college football at Boston, uh, at Boston College and he was a multiple, you know, he had multiple lettermen. In those days, college players, they played every sport. He played hockey. He played, he ran track and field, basketball, baseball, you name it, he did it. So when he comes to Buffalo in 1921, you know, it, it's a pretty big deal. He'd been an All-American and he comes, he's taking over basically for Heine Miller, who had left um, during that whole, dis- or not Heine Miller, I'm sorry, Murray Shelton, who had left. And then um, he becomes a starting end. And then Heine Miller, the other star, and leaves halfway through that season. Luke Urban ends up becoming an all-pro. He's an all-pro selection to all three seasons that he's here in Buffalo. So he be, he's a professional football player, all-pro for three seasons in Buffalo. Um, then he ends up playing for the Boston Braves in the ma- Major League Baseball team. He ends up playing parts of two seasons in the majors with the Boston Braves. And then later on, he becomes a golf pro at Grover Cleveland Golf Course here in Buffalo. So he's technically a professional in three sports. Take that, Deion Sanders. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so he was always a kind of a hero of mine. And I couldn't understand why he had never been in the Greater Buffalo Sports Hall of Fame. And, you know, I talked to a couple people who were on the committee over there, and they were like, well, you know, old dead guys, you know, they're not very sexy. You know, it's like, eh. You know, um, but I said, you know, you, you've got this team, the Buffalo All-Americans, who were runner-up to the championship in two consecutive seasons, 1920-21, and you have no representation from that team. In fact, the only player in the Greater Buffalo Sports Hall of Fame from the original Buffalo team is Jim Ehrlinger, who played in 1924 and was a backup guard and only went in because he was 99 years old and he was there to receive the, the you know, the award. So, you know, really, where where is Tommy Hewitt? Where is Swede Youngstrom? Where is Aki Anderson? Where is Luke Urban? So Luke finally gets in, but he's he's one of my favorites. Um, the other one, you know, we had um, Aki Anderson, who was a really good halfback for the first couple of years. He played at Colgate. He was uh, an All-America, two-time All-American, um, but he he ended up injury getting injured in, in twenty two early in twenty two and never never really came back from that. Um, you know, we had some great players. Elmer Oliphant ended up leading the league in um, extra points or something, something like that in, the, in 1921. He was an outstanding player, but he only played one year. Ben Boynton plays only one year. Um, you know, he was he was an outstanding player. So we've had we had some really great players. Um, you know, we, we mentioned earlier, you know, guys like Heine Miller, Eddie Kaw, uh, Pete Kalak, Swede Youngstrom. Frank Morrissey, we had some really good players, but we just couldn't sustain it. And that, the, you know, that was the nature of the NFL in those days. You know, these players were transient. They didn't stay anywhere very long unless, you know, you you could pay them to stay. And, 
you know, guys like Heine Miller, you know, they were there about the money and, you know, they're going to play and if they, they could make more money playing in Philadelphia, that's what they were going to do. And if they felt they were getting screwed, they, they were going to come back. And, you know, but, but it would have been interesting if they would have kept those five guys, it would have been really interesting to see what they could have done against Chicago in that last game in 1921. You, you you like to believe they beat them once, they beat them again, and they only lost by a field goal in that second game. You, you, it, it would be very interesting to see what would have happened. We might we we in the city of Buffalo might be able to say we've got an NFL championship. <laughs> now we've got the four Super Bowl losses and two AFL championships. So that's what we got. <laughs> Final question: You're one yeah. of the instructors at the Football Learning Academy. Tell me a little bit about your class titled "The First Big Game." Yeah, I, I wrote a piece um, about the first major professional football game played in New York City. It was between the Canton Bulldogs and the Buffalo All-Americans, two of the premier teams in 1920. And at that time, there would, uh, New York didn't have a team. So they wanted to bring in a couple of elite teams, high-profile teams, to to play in the polo grounds where, you know, they, they they thought this will, you know, sell the Big Apple on on the, on the professional game. So the, the Canton Bulldogs with Jim Thorpe, Joe Guyon, Pete Kalak, Cecil Gregg, uh, Wilbur Henry, they they were loaded. They were they were the premier team in the league, even though the pros won, Akron pros won the championship that year. Everybody knew who the Canton Bulldogs were because of Jim Thorpe. And the Swede Youngstrom, uh, the Swede Youngstrom led Buffalo All-Americans were pretty well known too. They had a lot of All-Americans too. They had Heine Miller, they had um, Bodie Weldon, and um, uh, they had they had a lot of really good players. Lou, Lou Little, Murray Shelton, um, they were loaded too, Lud Ray. So um, they staged this game and the All-Americans actually won. And um, so the, the Buffalo team is the first wins the first big game in New York City um, in front of, depending on which newspaper you read, 12,000 people is, seems to be the average um, that's mentioned. Uh, but they, they, I, it's pretty cool to think that, you know, as a Buffalo team that, that opened up New York City to the professional game. Jeff, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. And we definitely have to have you back when your book on the Rochester Jeffersons comes out. It was a pleasure, Ken. Always fun talking to you. And I definitely come back anytime you need me. That's all that we have for this episode. I hope that you enjoyed our interview with Jeff Miller. Stay tuned to our social media channels to stay up to date on our episodes. You can find the links at the Football Learning Academy website at www.football-learning-academy.com. Not only will you find the links to our social media channels and a listing of all of our podcast episodes, but you'll also find other fascinating interviews and classes. And an important note, portion of all proceeds generated at the Football Learning Academy go to help retired players in need. That website again is www.football-learning-academy.com. Thank you for listening to the official Football Learning Academy podcast.